Listen to these words that are attributed to Gandhi. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And it's not just Gandhi who felt that way. I'm sure there are many today who would express similar feelings about Christians. And can we blame them? These days, it's not unusual to hear about ministers who are caught in yet just another scandal. And it's not just pastors. It's even those within the church. I'm sure one of us who have spent any time in church know that Christians sin against one another. And so there's a reason to be offended and take offense at, at a Christian who would sin against us. So the world too, experiences even our own sin. They hear of Christians who bite and devour one another. The world sees churches divide over petty little squabbles, and many unbelievers have even been sinned against by us who do not walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The world's criticism towards the church is often a criticism that is well-deserved. Some of us might think, well, being criticized, being hated by the world, isn't that an honor? After all, Jesus did say, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Understand this, Christian, if you are being persecuted for righteousness' sake, then blessed are you, Christian. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But that's only if you're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. But when we are hated by the world because of our sins, that is not persecution. And such hatred is not a badge of honor. And we should not be proud of it because the reputation of the church and the reputation of Christ are somehow closely bound together. Those outside of the church, they might not know the Bible. Outsiders are less likely to know the gospel. Outsiders certainly do not know God in a saving way. But they do know you. Last week we saw Paul having prayed for an opportunity to share the gospel and for clarity and, and preaching the gospel. He now turns to the Colossians and consequently to us as well to give us one last command for how we are to live our lives. Listen to him in verses 5 and 6. He says this, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you might know how you ought to answer each person. From this text, I see really one main point with two sub points. So you could call it a three-point sermon, but, but there's one main point that Paul has in this text, and that's this. We are to walk in wisdom in this world. Walk in wisdom, Paul says, towards outsiders. He's talking about those who are not Christians, those who are not in Christ. We're to walk in wisdom towards them. Let's consider for just a moment what it means to walk in wisdom. First of all, what does it mean to walk? When we talk about our walk, we're using a metaphor to talk about the way in which we live. 
We use expressions like this all the time, this Christianese language that we use. We talk about those who would otherwise talk the talk but not walk the walk. In other words, their words are full of all these ideas of how a Christian should live, and yet their, their own life doesn't fall into conformity with what they say. To use another idiom, we say they do not practice what they preach. So understand what it means to, to walk here in this context. It's talking about your life, our life, the way in which the Christian is to live. And he says, walk in wisdom. In other words, let the things you know guide what you do. And this has been Paul's aim from the very beginning of this letter. That we would know God, and having known God, that we would be transformed in that knowledge in such a way that what we do would be different from that of the world. Paul has prayed to this end from the very beginning. Listen to him in Colossians 1, 9, and 10. He said, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So Paul, he's prayed to that end. He has labored to this end as well so that we would be filled with a knowledge of Christ. Listen to him again in Colossians 2, 1 through 3. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and to the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul has labored to that end in preaching the gospel so that we would attain a knowledge of the mystery that has once been hidden but now is revealed. He is working to unpack those gospel truths so that we would be wise in Christ. And so as a part of his labor, he has guarded the church to this end so that we would not walk in a way that is contrary to Christ. Colossians 2.8, he said it this way, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. There's the wisdom of the world there. By philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. These philosophies, he says in verse 23, they indeed have the appearance of wisdom and promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. In other words, that wisdom doesn't actually change the way you walk. And so after having prayed, labored to unpack the mystery of Christ, that is the gospel, after having guarded the church against the false teachers that are there in their midst, Paul finally shows them in chapter 3 the way in which they are to walk. Having a knowledge of God transforms the way they walk. And so he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthy in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. And so in contrast to that walk, he now shows us what is the will of God, what is fully pleasing to him. Verses 12 and 13, put on then God as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. After having been transformed by the knowledge of being chosen, holy and beloved, he says, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, 
forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So to summarize, this entire letter, to this extent, has been this, that the Colossians would know Christ and having a knowledge of Christ would be able to apply that knowledge to their life so they would be able to walk in wisdom. And so here, as we come near to the end of this letter, we're almost done with Colossians. We have one more week left in this letter after this week. But here he comes full circle. And and he says this, the Christian life is not just an internal life that is, is just to be had within the bounds of the church, but it affects even those who are outside of the church. Verses five and six, he's six. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. So what does it mean to walk in wisdom then in the world? Is it even okay to associate with outsiders? Some might draw from Psalm 1 and come to the conclusion that to do so would be unsafe, to be dangerous, that we might become like them. Psalm 1 says this, blessed is the man who walks, there's that language once again, who does not live, who does not walk in the the counsel or the, the wisdom of the wicked. But what's being guarded in Psalm 1 is not being associated with the wicked, but it's walking according to the wisdom, the the counsel of the wicked. So is it okay to associate with outsiders to ask that question again? Not only is it okay, but it's commanded that we do so. What is the great commission except for Christ's command to us to go where Christ is not named so that we would make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit? Paul said to the Corinthians, something very similar. When telling them to practice church discipline about those who are sexually immoral in their midst, he said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. And then he clarifies, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolatries, since then you need to go out of the world. Paul recognizes as a missionary himself, as an apostle who is going to the Gentiles, that he is associating with those who are in the world and outside of the church. So we should recognize this. Christianity is a missionary faith. In fact, the very heart of the gospel demonstrates this to be true. That our God, who is holy and separate from those who are wicked and sinners, came near and drew near to us. He dwelt with us dwelt with sinners. He was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. And though he became like us in that he put on flesh, he did not become like us in participating in sin, but instead he drew near to sinners so that he could save sinners from sin. So though we are walking in the world, we know that we are to not be like the world. We are in the world, but not of the world. And this is why we are told to walk in wisdom in the world with these outsiders. Jesus gave his disciples these instructions. They're very similar to the instructions that Paul even has here. Matthew 10, 16, he said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Wise as serpents, that's a curious image to draw. 
You see, serpents are a symbol of shrewdness, of wisdom, of being cunning like that snake in the garden of Genesis 3. And so he calls us to likewise be shrewd, to be wise. But we're not to be like the serpent in every way. We're not to be shrewd in the way of sin, but rather we're to be shrewd so that we might recognize the cunning shrewdness of Satan who wishes to ensnare us like he did Adam and Eve there in the garden. You see, we are to be wise because bad company ruins good morals, 1 Corinthians 15.33. And a little leaven leavens the whole lump, 1 Corinthians 5.6. And we have a cunning enemy who will entice us into subtle little sins. You see, the world, they get away with it. You can get away with it too, the enemy will say. So we're to be wise like the serpent who is cunning, but our wisdom is not to be cunning and deceitful, but rather we're to use our wisdom so that we might be innocent as doves, not to seek our own advantage at the expense of others, but our wisdom from pure hearts, having been born again, having the spirit of God that dwells in us, we are to to use the wisdom that comes from him so that we are to live lives that glorify God. So Christians, they use their wisdom that comes from God so that they might walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. We are wise. We are to be wise. And yet, in our wisdom, it is so that we would remain innocent. As Paul says in Romans 16, 19, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So we're called by our Lord to walk in the world, to be in the world and not of the world, to be holy and set apart. And to that end, Paul gives a very similar instruction to what we have here in Colossians, again, to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Or as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So this is a part of why we are to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. It's so that we would Let our light shine. Let our good works be seen by them and so that when they make an accusation against us and when they do persecute us, we would not be guilty of what they accuse us of, but instead they might give glory to God on the day of visitation. But here in our text this morning, Paul seems to have far more in mind than just simply the holiness of the church. Paul's aim in Colossians appears to be primarily evangelistic. Listen again to Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. So what follows after the, the main point, now I have two subpoints on what it looks like to, to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. First, we are to walk in wisdom, Paul says, by being wise with our time. 
Oftentimes, this text here in Colossians and as well in Ephesians is, is used by productivity gurus in the Christian sphere to try to talk about Christian productivity, how to get more done for the glory of God. And that's not exactly what's going on, but it's not exactly wrong either. What I mean by that is it's not just about getting more things done. It's about getting the right thing done. In fact, that's what productivity is. Productivity isn't just about getting all the things done that need to get done, but it's about setting priorities and getting the important things done. That's why we can have an otherwise day full of all kinds of tasks, but when we don't get the important things done, we still say it was unproductive, even though it was full. So this text is about productivity so long as we rightly identify what is important before us. And the task that Paul has in mind here is making Christ known to outsiders. So we should make the best use of the time. Or as the KJV puts it, redeem the time. Because our master has given us clear orders in what we are to do. The church has one mission. Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. As Christians, we all have been given this task. This is not the task of missionaries alone or pastors alone. This is the task of the church, the whole body of Christ. And so it is, Paul says, we are to, to redeem the time, make the best of the time that we have here with outsiders. Now, this might not seem like the time to put this in here in this letter. Here at the end, he has a final thought, and, and it seems like he's covered all kinds of other areas about the Christian life and what it is we are to be doing, how the, the Christian household is to be ordered. But now he goes on to show us that that in all these opportunities, even these opportunities in and of themselves are an opportunity for Christ to be magnified in our lives so that people might see our good works and glorify God in heaven, even if these opportunities don't seem like prime opportunities. You see, Paul, he, he preached, and he had his planned times of preaching the gospel, making the gospel known. He did this in synagogues. But let's not forget that Paul, at one point, was even a full-time tent maker, and on the side, he was going about this work of making the gospel known because Paul would not squander any opportunity that he had to preach Christ crucified. Even when he was in jail, Paul saw that as another opportunity to share the gospel. It was a tough circumstance to be sure, but there when he was in the, the Philippian jail cell, he met that Philippian jailer and he preached the gospel to him and the Philippian jailer and all his household were saved when they heard and believed the gospel. We read of this also in Acts 28, very similarly. Paul, once again, being in prison, used this as an opportunity from morning till evening to expound and testify to the kingdom of God, trying to convince all those who were around him, both from Jesus, from Jesus to the law of Moses and the prophets, that of, of the gospel. Paul writes specifically of it again in Philippians 1, 12 through 14. I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me there in his imprisonment. What has happened to me has served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So these aren't, 
These aren't prime opportunities, I wouldn't say, at least to share the gospel. And yet Paul would use the time. He would redeem the time, no matter what it was, so that he would have an opportunity to preach the gospel and make Christ known. So what would it look like for us to redeem the time in grocery stores and parks with our extended family who does not know Christ in waiting rooms, in doctor's offices, in workplaces? What would it look like to redeem the time so that Christ's glory might be seen among those places where he is not named? In any place, in any time, it's true. Wisdom's needed. I don't know what that looks like for you. But God gives wisdom to those who ask. But to simply remain silent all our years without ever sharing the gospel with those who need to hear the good news of salvation is not what it looks like to make the best use of our time. Jesus says it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that when they see your good works, they can give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This reminds me of my mom. My mom was an antique collector. She had many old things around her house. And she also had two boys who were rambunctious. One of those old things that she had was an old set of candelabras that she kept on the dining room table. Now, not a single candlestick on that candelabra stood upright because it fell off the table time and time and time again due to my brothers and my wrestlings. And yet that candelabra was meant to be seen. It was meant to be put up so that others could enjoy it, so that the light would shine, so it would give light to those who were in the room, not to be shoved away into a box to be kept safe for another 100 years. So too, we might have a nice life, But what good is that life if that life is not a life that is faithful to the commands that our Lord has given us, to the mission that he has assigned to us? The parable of the talents expresses this similar sentiment once again. Who are the faithful servants? It's the ones who occupied themselves with the the duty of their master, not the one who buried the master's money. So too, we are far more concerned in our life about our own families, finances, even fun. And these things, sure, they they do have their place. I'm not trying to dismiss them, but there is a danger when these things trump what is the most important thing, and that is being faithful to our God. We can be faithful in our family, yes. We can be faithful in our finances. We can be faithful in all the other activities that we have. But if in all these other things we do not do what Christ has called us to do, letting our light shine before others so that they might glorify God, I fear what he might say to us on that day when he comes. And so what is most important? What is of first importance? Paul makes it, again, abundantly clear to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
And so it is, that should be of first importance to us as well in all the conversations that we have, in all the time that we have, that we make Christ known. Oh, what would it look like if every single one of us here made the best use of the time for the glory of God? And what I mean by that is not for the sake of bigger churches, certainly not for the sake of the name of Living Water Church, but for the sake of more worshipers who love Jesus and want to glorify him with their life, and for the sake of his name that is in fact magnificent so that he would be magnified and worshipped and seen as fully supreme and sufficient above all things. Now some of us go, my life is so precious. You're asking me to give up my, my time, which is my very life. Understand this. Our lives are not our own. First Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. Our very life is our very time. And our time, yes, it is precious. Money is far less valuable than time. Money can be spent, it could be invested, you can even gain the money back if you return whatever you buy, but an hour that is spent is an hour that is, it is gone forever. And yet some of us squander our time, or better yet, the time that the Lord has given us as if it is cheap. And others still are perhaps greedy with our time as if it is ours and ours alone. But no, we are not our own. We belong to Christ, every single bit of us, every single second that we have is time that is given by God. And so make the best use of the time. Redeem the time, using it wisely. Don't put your light under a basket, but let it be seen so that others might see it and give glory to God. I love the words of William Carey, that missionary. He said this, I am not afraid of failure. How many times do we not share the gospel because we're afraid of failing? He said, I am not afraid of failure. I am afraid of succeeding at the things that don't matter. We often wait for the right moment when everything seems to line up to share the gospel. Perhaps when someone will ask me and say, will you please share the gospel with me? But how many right moments have passed us by? Our time is short. Psalm 90, 70 years, perhaps 80 by reason of strength. Proverbs 27, 1 says, do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring. Friends, how many, how many more opportunities do we have with loved ones before they are not here any longer? How much more time do we have with our neighbors before they move away? And so we ought to, to make the best use of the time. And we ought to use Paul's prayer requests that we just learned about last week as well for our own time. He said, pray also for us that God might open to us a door for the word. That is the opportunity right there that we need, that, that we might use the time, having a door open so that we might share the gospel. And not only that, but he continues, and that I might make it clear which is how I ought to speak, which leads us to the, the second way in which we are to be wise in the way we conduct ourselves with outsiders. Yes, we are to be wise with our time, but he continues in verse 6, he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, 
so that you might know how you ought to answer each person. So be wise with your time, yes, but also he says that we are to be wise with our words. He says, let your speech always be gracious. We're to have gracious words. I want us to consider for just a moment, how is it that we came to faith? What was it that won us to Christ? I wonder how many of us came to Christ because someone made us feel like a fool. Or I wonder how many of us came to Christ because we heard a, a, date about, a debate excuse me, about predestination versus free will. Or how many of us came to Christ because someone was condescending to us with cruel words. I, I doubt there's any of us in here. Perhaps if it's true, it's only a testimony of how the Lord can shoot straight with crooked sticks. But I bet for most of us, we were one to Christ by hearing the sweet, gracious words of the gospel, of God's love for us, his grace that was displayed to us in the death of Christ when he took our sins upon himself. Oh, what good news that is to hear time and time again. And yet I fear there are many of us who try to win people to Christ while forgetting what it was that won us to Christ in the first place. I fear there are most of us that are far more occupied with winning the argument and debate than winning the soul to Christ. The gospel is good news. So friends, let's not bludgeon people with the bat of our words. But instead, let's be wise with how we speak. And when I say speak, when I talk about our words, that includes Facebook or Twitter or any other place where you might kind of get on your rant and be brave behind a keyboard. We need to be gracious in all that we say. And yet, let me clarify one thing. When I talk about being gracious with our words, this does not mean that we are timid in what we say. There needs to be a boldness in our proclamation, now more than ever, in a world that is hostile towards the gospel. There needs to be a boldness in what we believe. And so what, what we need to do is we need to actually be able to say the words that we ourselves have come to grip with, that we are convinced of what God's word says that sin has a real penalty and that there is a real solution to our sin and that is Christ and that Christ is the only way to deal with our sins. We need not apologize for what we believe and what we proclaim. For we should not be ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So make it known. Be bold in your proclamation. Do not be timid in it and yet we need to also know that being bold is not the same as being brash. Earlier when I talked about being wise with our time, I said that some of us need to be perhaps quicker to speak. And yet when we're to be wise with our words, some others would need to learn how to be a little slower to speak. My dad would always say, think before you answer, Josh. And sometimes I would do well if I would just stop and think before I even say a word. James gives us this warning. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large, they are driven by strong winds. They are guided by a very small rudder 
whatever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Such is the danger of a, a loose tongue. Many, as, many of us love to speak the truth. At least that's what we call it. But what's really done is gossip, slander, put-downs, criticisms. So yes, it's true, we are always to speak the truth, but don't forget that the truth that we're called to speak is to be spoken in love. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as fits and is good for building up and fits the occasion that it might give grace to those who hear. I've been meditating even on 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 for weeks now, and I am thoroughly convicted even in my own pride. It says this, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. But what's the work of salvation from? How is it going to be through? How are they going to repent? Is it because of a strong argument or eloquent words? No, he continues. He can be gentle. He doesn't have to be quarrelsome. He can be kind, enduring evil. Because of this, he says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Repentance is a gift of God. He calls us to open our mouth and to be faithful in it. He even tells us the manner in which we are to speak, but understand if anything good is going to come of our words and proclamation of the gospel, it is going to be because God has opened the eyes of the blind and softened the hard hearts of those who are rebellious towards him. So we can be gracious with our words. In fact, we are to be gracious with our words. And he gives us a word picture to further show us what this looks like. He says this in Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt. Don't you know how salt makes what's otherwise plain wonderful? Potatoes are gross, I think. If you're eating it like an apple, they need to be cooked, and they need a little bit of salt. And so too, our words should be seasoned with the gracious, glorious gospel truths. It adds a little bit of flavor. And someone might even find that they want to hear more. Certainly the gospel is an offense. And I am not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that we change the message of the gospel as if the gospel is what needs to be garnished with salt. What needs to be garnished with salt is our tongue. But do not think that means we need to change the message. So warn people of sin. Don't soft pedal. Don't apologize for it. Warn them knowing this, that the wrath of God is coming against sinners. Call sinners to repentance and warn them that the wages of sin is death. But don't stop there. Season your speech with salt so that they would also know that the free gift of God is salvation for all who believe in Christ. The gospel is an offense to those who are perishing, but that does not mean our words need to be offensive as well. And so let your speech always be gracious, 
seasoned with salt. And here's the reason for it. So that you might know how you ought to answer each person. Even here in this last line, there's so much that can be said. But what's needed most of all is wisdom. Because every conversation with every single person is going to look different. Preaching the gospel, it is one message, one faith, one God who we proclaim, and yet one size does not fit all in the way that we proclaim the gospel. Those who are avid fly fishermen know this when they go fishing, right? They do this weird thing when they catch a fish. I think it's strange at least. They pump the fish's stomach to see what the fish are biting on. An experienced fly fisherman knows how to use all the different flies in his tackle. So too, if we are a wise fisher of men, we will be wise with our words because our aim is to win them and not offend them. And so if we're speaking to those who are young, we will speak to them at their own level, making the gospel clear to them. If we're speaking to those who are old and wise and intelligent, then we will speak to them again in, in wisdom to know how we ought to, to answer to them. If we're speaking to Catholics, you should maybe know a little bit about Catholics so as to how to, to best present the gospel to those who are Catholics and just the same with those who are atheists and renounce God altogether. There's so much wisdom that we could apply to how we are to answer each person. We see this all over the place, even throughout the book of Acts. Paul, he spoke one way to the, the pagans on Mars Hill and then to Agrippa, who was well acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures, he spoke another way. We are to use wisdom when we make the gospel known to people so that we, like Paul, might be clear. That's what he prayed for, after all. That he might make the gospel clear, which is how he ought to speak. So it is of us. So how can we cover such a large scope of ground? All the wisdom that's implied. Perhaps there's two things that we can apply here so that we might know how to answer each person. Yes, be gracious. Let your speech be seasoned with salt. And if you're going to know how to do this, I think the hint comes first from what we already heard in Colossians 3.16. Paul said that the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. If we're going to be wise in the way that we talk with people about Christ, let us know the word of God. Let us know it well so that we have various tools at our disposal, various flies in our tackle so that we might be able to answer different people in different ways with wisdom. But not only that, let us also trust the spirit who God has given us, the spirit that is able to make the simple wise. Jesus says these words again to his disciples with regards to their own giving a defense for the faith that they have. Luke 21, 12 through 15. He says this, that you will be persecuted and delivered up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be an opportunity to bear witness. So to hear that all these different circumstances, once again, it's a time. It's, it's them taking an opportunity and making the best of the time, and yet here's the wisdom of their words. He says this in verse 14. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Understand that where this wisdom comes from and the boldness to be able to even open our mouth and speak comes from God. 
And so we ought to pray and ask for wisdom, just as Paul did when he said that he needs prayer so that he might make clear the mystery of Christ, which is how he ought to speak. Now, for those who are hearing my voice, I don't want to assume anything this morning. I'm speaking primarily as if everyone here is an insider. And yet I'm sure there are some here who are outsiders, who have been offended by Christians, who have been offended perhaps even by the gospel. While I can't remove the offense of the gospel from you, the Lord must do that. I'm, I'm pleading with you. If, if you are offended by a Christian and a Christian is keeping you from embracing Christ, look to Christ again. See his love for sinners and believe in him. The gospel is good news of grace of God that is available for all who put their faith in Jesus. So hear the words of, of John the words of the evangelist himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, do so today. For the rest of us who are insiders, let us remember that same gospel that won us to Christ. We have a message to proclaim. So let's be wise with our time and wise with our words and make him known. To that end, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this wonderful gospel that we have received, this wonderful salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. Even for those today who perhaps have yet to put faith, their faith in you, I pray that you would soften their hearts and open their eyes so that they might hear the gospel afresh and believe and so be satisfied by you. Would you glorify yourself in this way even now? And for those of us who are perhaps timid with our words, not making the best of the time, I pray that you would give us your spirit so that we might be bold, so that we might have the words to say to those who are without hope and perishing in the world. And for others still who are quick with words, but have a heart that pours out what is evil, I pray that you would continue to, to change even our own hearts, so that out of the abundance of our heart would come gracious words seasoned with salt. Lord, give us wisdom in all these ways so that we might be wise fishermen to win people to you. So give us opportunity, we ask, and clarity for our words, for the glory of your name, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.